0: Patricia Powell is well-known as a trailblazing Sister of Mercy from Bathurst, New South Wales. Having been an educator and leader of her congregation of Sisters of Mercy during times of change, she later became a voice for justice for the vulnerable, marginalised, the imprisoned, First Nations peoples, for women, refugees and eventually the whole of the earth community. In 2007, she was a founding member of the Mercy Ministry Rahamim Ecological Learning Community, the ministry which is now producing this podcast.
1: We felt in this whole issue of um, understanding how the planet works and understanding anew the human's role on the planet, in other words, that we were part of the planetary system. We weren't over against it or above it. We were actually part of it and we had to learn how to uh, be part of the web of life that is
0: the planet. In 2018, she received the Order of Australia Medal acknowledging her life of pioneering work and service. I'm Sally Neves and this is Thresholds. Patricia Powell, welcome to the Thresholds podcast and welcome back to In.
1: Thank you very much, Sally. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, you've recently won the Order of Australia Medal and been awarded this great honour for your life of dedicated service. And I'm just wondering if, we, if we, could, we could hear most of that story of how you ended up in that place by going way, way, way back to um, your childhood. Well, it's not that far, really. Um, so like, I was wondering like, if you Like three quarters of the century. So. <laughs> yeah. So... Just thinking back to your beginnings and your childhood, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your spiritual upbringing or your exposure to um, a kind of a religious upbringing at that time.
1: Yes, I could do that. Um, I was brought up in, just after the Second World War, I was born and so I grew up in a rural city, the city of Orange, and um, I was the eldest of five children Um, My family was a devout Catholic family. Uh, My father particularly um, had Irish origins, and so he was a very um, sincere and practising Catholic. Um, And so we did all the things that Catholic kids did in those days. I went to a Catholic school. We went to Mass on Sunday. We participated in all the church activities. I played the organ in the church. Um, All of the things that Catholic young people did I did in those growing up years it was a fairly unremarkable uh, period of my life actually
0: hmm and is there anything from those years that you would you would say are still with you now
1: um, yes probably the core um, focus of my life has been um, Action for Mercy and Justice. I may not have expressed it that way in those years, but my father was a member of the St Vincent de Paul Society and um, so I grew up witnessing um, parents who cared about other people who might have been doing it tough. Mind you, everybody was doing it pretty tough in those years, including ourselves. Um, And I also had the witness of the Sisters of Mercy, who were my educators, and um, saw the way they assisted particularly people that these days we might call marginalised or, um, you know, living in uh, fairly dire straits. And um, I could even include our family in that um, category after my father died in my last year at school. Mm -hmm. The sisters were particularly kind and helpful to my mother, who was left a widow with a young family.
0: Yes. And so um, it seems to me that your journey is one of constantly pushing new boundaries. You know, you, you're one of the first to become educated, going to university, and then you're the mentor for the other younger ones coming in, and you're, you're taking on the, the theological education and the education and biblical studies and so on. And eventually you ended up uh, coming up with the concept of the Rahamim Ecological Learning Community Ministry. <laughs> So I can see that there must have been a huge amount leading up to that point. Could you take us on a bit of a journey of some of the milestones leading up to the Rahamim story?
1: Yes, I could do that.
0: Um, In the
1: 1980s, um, after I'd been um, working in leadership with the Sisters of Mercy at local and national level... I was a councillor for the uh, Union of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia, and then I was a local councillor for my own congregation. Um, the 1970s were really interesting flow-on years from the Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. The Vatican Council asked us to uh, renew and go back to renew our works and go back to the original founding charism. Or um, vision of our founders. And of course, Catherine Macaulay worked with marginalized people. So um, we began to move out of the institutional works and go to the margins. Um, they were years when we were also encouraged by third world um, theology, liberation theology, to make a preferential option. It was considered to be the litmus test of the gospel, how you related with people on the margins. And so um, the Sisters of Mercy, the group that I belong to, and in fact across Australia, began moving out to much more marginal works uh, with prisoners, uh, with people who had physical disabilities, um, with, um, with people who had AIDS, um, and um, I, went with, um, I went with one of the other sisters to work with the Aboriginal communities in Western and Central Western New South Wales. Mm -hmm. That was a very formative time for me, Um, both in terms of understanding that uh, mercy was not just a Band-Aid direct charitable response to need or suffering, but that we began to analyse why that suffering was there, what were the causes, and a lot of them were structural injustices. Mm. And so our work was not just direct response, but also trying to address and change uh, things at a structural level in society, um, so that we could deal with causes, not just effects. So that was that was very important, um, you know, formatively for me. And then uh, I guess the other thing that was so important at that stage was just my engagement with the Aboriginal people and touching into their spirituality. Mm. Touching into their spirituality gave me a hunger to um, touch more deeply into my own spirituality. And so I was coming up due... It was about 25 years, I suppose, at that stage that I'd been a Sister of Mercy. I was coming up for sabbatical. Mm. And so when I was given that opportunity... I asked to go to Canada, where um, my hope was that um, studying something of my own Catholic tradition and spiritual foundations, I might be able to come back to Australia and engage with Aboriginal people at that spiritual level um, more effectively than I felt I was able to, um, having spent those years with them in Dubbo in various sorts of partnerships. Mm. So that's what I did. I had a fair amount of involvement with the Ojibwe people in Canada, and that was that was good too. That was alongside the more formal studies that I was doing, and I ended up staying in Canada for three years. So that was a very um, very rich time for mm. me as well to be living with you know people of another culture, and to being exposed to indigenous people of mm. another culture. So um, when I came home, um, I'd moved through. Um, my focus on racism, uh, which had been um, very strongly in me when I first came out of my experience of working with the Aboriginal people in Dubbo. When I first went to work with the Aboriginal people, I had come out of a school situation where I was deputy principal in a school and very highly regarded, both in the local community and the Catholic community. When I went to Dubbo, it was like being at the the hub of a wheel. Mm. When I went to Dubbo and identified with the Aboriginal people, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, suddenly I found myself right out on the rim of the wheel. Mm. You know, I was no no longer um, a highly respected educator. In fact, people said what I considered to be really horrible, things like, what a waste, Mm. what a waste for this woman to be doing what she's doing now, you know? So um, that was a a very... um, ..a very (sighs) pertinent experience, Mm -hmm. I suppose. The closest experience that I could have got at that stage of what racism was like. Mm -hmm. Apart from going to um, places like real estate agents with Aboriginal people and being told that there was no accommodation available, knowing full well that there was accommodation, but simply because these people were Aboriginal... Mm -hmm. um, not known in their own individual selves, Mm -hmm. they would have been um, rejected or excuses found as to why Mm -hmm. they should not be given accommodation as it was available. So, I like, my experience of racism was very strong and then when I was in Canada, um, I was exposed to feminism Mm -hmm. and what I discovered was that um, racism and feminism had very similar roots in patriarchy, which I'd never heard of. Mm. But, um, you know, patriarchy um, where uh, the human male is the dominant um, feature on the horizon or in the landscape Uh, and, and, you know, so much of our society still is structured on a patriarchal notion of reality... And I won't go into all the details of patriarchy, but it was a very interesting and eye-opening thing to discover that feminism and racism had common roots. I came home from Canada and was almost immediately elected Congregational Leader at our local chapter here in Bathurst. And I occupied that position for about 10 years, or for 10 years. And during that time, uh, we established the Mercy and Justice Centre here at St Joseph's Mount... St. Joseph's Mount was a uh, it was a four point seven hectare property with a heritage house on it uh, that we were gifted with back in the at the turn of the twentieth century. It had been our novitiate or place of training and our administration centre for almost a century. And um, every now and again, the question arose: Do we still have a need for this property <gasps> for ministry, or should we be allowing it to? Um, uh, you know, pass on to somebody else, either sell it or give it to another group who could use it if we couldn't use it. Now, mind you, this is the era after the Vatican Council when vocations to religious life had dropped significantly, so we didn't have a lot of people here in training. And um, um as I say, lots of, of the sisters had moved out of institutional work into um, living individually in dwellings around the town, just on the street with ordinary people and th- we were, like we were thinking very differently out of our new insights and understandings of what religious life was all about and what and, and how to minister in mercy. So um, after I'd completed uh, one term of office as congregational leader, uh, I was asked to do a second term but I was given um, a summer break. Uh, A European summer break or an American summer break to go overseas for three months and um, just do a sort of do some something to refresh myself before I started Mm. on my second term as Congregational Leader. So I went back to Canada. And this time um, I was interested in uh, looking at uh, eco-spirituality. I chose a summer course that was called Eco Spirituality. And I went to a course in um, New York that was called The Global Agenda of Feminist Theology. Mm-hmm. So put those two things together. So um, I was still, still really uh, interested in feminism and, as I say, the relationship of other isms mm. under the umbrella of or having their roots in patriarchy. And I don't know what I was expecting from this eco-spirituality course. I I suppose I thought I'd be doing a fair bit of gardening and, you know, getting some information about permaculture. But what actually happened was I was exposed to the new universe story. Mm
2: -hmm. Now,
1: I'd never done science at school. I did music when other people in my class were doing science. So I had nothing to unlearn. Mm -hmm. Here I was exposed to this extraordinary story Of the unfolding universe and the evolving planet. I was absolutely awestruck. You know, I was blown out of the water. I just couldn't get enough of it. And um, just at the point where I'd sort of discovered this story, this new story of origins, um, I also discovered that the human species, through our Um, technological developments of the last 200 years were on the verge of wrecking the whole enterprise. Mm. So I came home from Canada with this dual knowledge of absolute amazement Mm. at the adventure that we were part of in this unfolding universe and trembling with terror at what we were involved in destroying and feeling quite helpless about how that was happening
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what I could do about it.
0: What years are these?
1: These Is are it? in the 1990s, mm-hmm. okay? So when I came home, I began this little, as well as you know, doing my other duties as a leader, I began this little cosmology uh, group. And we used to meet uh, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, depending on how our lives were going. And I was, I was struck with the way every time we told the story, with the help of Brian Swim and Thomas Berry, um, they had put out a, a book and a DVD at this stage that to popularise the science mm-hmm. around uh, this story. Um, people, were, people loved it. Mm. It, was, it was new and it was, it was a new insight and it was eye-opening and it made sense. Mm. And not only did they love the story, but they began to look for a safe space where they could explore their faith beliefs and their other held deeply healed beliefs that this story sometimes challenged when you heard it for the first time. Mm-hmm. We, we used to have s- special interest groups in the congregation and I was part of an eco-spirituality group and we began to look very seriously at setting up something more um, structured in terms of an education program around... Um, environmental awareness and education, like broader education around the scientific information we have about the planet, as well as um, beginning to explore what sort of spirituality might be associated with that and what impact that would have on our spirituality of mercy. Mm -hmm. So we were already having that conversation. The Mercy and Justice Centre, which was an outreach and a gathering place, particularly for people who were marginalised, it was flourishing. And we came to the end of that, um, I came to the end of that term of office um, with a proposal to the chapter that we might look at developing the property St. Joseph's Mount as a centre for environmental study as well as the Mercy and Justice Outreach, that we might expand the outreach to include
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, um, the planet, its life forms and life support systems. Well, as often happens when you have a change in leadership... Um, That proposal um, didn't really take off Mm. at that stage. It was sort of set aside for other things that were possibly um, considered at the time more challenging or more important that needed to be dealt with. I think that might have also been the era when we were just beginning to deal with... um, um, Issues of abuse in the church, mm. and that's that absorbed a lot of time of congregational leaders at that stage. Even if your particular congregation wasn't involved, mm. um, if you had a children's home, then um, and we did, we had two children's homes. You had to be ready to listen to the stories of people who, um, you know, who just wanted to talk about their experiences of being children who were abandoned, Mm. children who grew up in care and what that impact had had on them. The issue of St Joseph's Mount came up again Mm -hmm. while I was in this adult faith education field and I was very absorbed in what I was doing there. Um, And some of the sisters who'd been part of the conversation before the chapter, um, when I finished up, um, had said to me, look they're calling for proposals for the use of the property, would you put our proposal in again? I wasn't inclined to. I felt that the moment had passed and we'd sort of missed the boat. But anyway, um, just at the last minute, I decided that I would put the proposal in and it went in alongside about half a dozen other proposals for the use of the property, including one to sell it. And to my great astonishment, the, the proposal to use the property... As a centre for um, education and awareness raising for the environment, that was the one that got over the line. Mm-hmm. And it got over the line with a lot of support. I think there were the majority of sisters wanted to go in that direction. So that's how we began to think about: well, how would we structure this? We had lots of meetings with local people um, who were interested, who were, you know, worried about the environment and interested in. Um, getting up a, setting up a place where we could focus directly on that and and um, you know develop some education programs. And uh, uh, around about the same time we were making applications for funding, which was available at that stage to support environmental works. And again, to our great astonishment, and we took it as a as an affirmation that the direction was right. We got a grant from the New South Wales Government, mm-hmm. the Environment Department, um, for a project that was we called Living with Water and Sun and it was about conserving energy and water on the property. And we had lots of wonderful um, experts at that time, people from um, the University in Canberra, people from the University in Bathurst, um, Charles Sturt. Um, lots of interested people converged on the place to help us come up with a proposal, like a solid proposal, and a plan for how we would go about developing the place. And we looked at a three-tiered plan where we would have um, a program for education, uh, we'd have a demonstration site, and ultimately uh, we'd look at an eco-village on some part of the property, because there was room for that to happen. that proposal was put to the congregation again and was received very well. And so um, we took off Rahamim, mm. Ecoli- what did we call it? Rahamim Ecological Learning Community because we felt in this whole issue of um, understanding how the planet works and understanding anew the human's role on the planet, in other words, that we were part of the planetary system, we weren't over against it or above it, we were actually part of it, and we had to learn how to uh, be part of the web of life that is the planet.
2: Mm.
1: And um, you know that was going to that was going to demand a big shift in our consciousness and our awareness of ourselves, because um, you know our faith was telling us that we were very special people,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but special doesn't necessarily mean superior to or um, with the. Um, license to dominate and um, exploit um, just for our purposes as human beings. Mm. So um, a a working party was set up and um, we did all our homework that we were asked to do and we had to do a lot of homework and eventually Rahamim Ecological Learning Community Um, a community that was made up of people who were on a steep learning curve. We were all learning together, whether we were experts or whether we were novices. Um, It was launched in 2007. Mm. Um, We had a very small staff, skeleton staff, but we had lots of energy and lots of volunteers. And our volunteers ranged from um, prisoners at the jail who used to come over under the supervision of their um, supervisor and help us with the work that had to be done on the property, um, right through to, you know, academic experts who came with knowledge about water and soil. And uh, one, of our, one of our early advocates was Peter Andrews, mm. who had some groundbreaking uh, methods of um, farming, um, and he came and helped us study our landscape uh, to see uh, what how, how best to um, manage our land so that it was, um, uh, you know, so that we were, we were promoting it and enhancing it rather than contributing to its deterioration. Mm-hmm. Sally, one of the really um, significant things for me in the years when I worked with Aboriginal people before I went to Canada was that, that they were the years when we were working towards land rights. So I was involved in lots of protests and, um, you know, lots of um, petitions around Aboriginal land rights. Mm. And that's when I began to understand the close connection that Aboriginal people have with the land. Mm. And when I began to um, be engaged with the New Universe story, that's one of the things that I began to experience myself, that coming out of an evolving universe and and an evolving planet, Mm -hmm. I myself began to feel my own connectedness Mm -hmm. to the land and to the rest of the natural world, its life forms and life support systems. So at that point I began to believe that I was experiencing at a spiritual level a relationship with the planet Mm. akin to the relationship that Aboriginal people Mm. have. I'm not saying it was the same and I'm saying that the symbols that spoke to me about that were different from the symbols that Aboriginal people used to express that. But I think at that very deep level I began to experience something akin
2: Mm.
1: to their connectedness with the land Mm. and um, their desire to care for it Mm. and, uh, you know, stay with it.
0: It seems to me what's happening in your life and the trajectory of your life is taking on the work of those who are vulnerable um, to defend justice and to fight for justice, first of all, which has more and more led to um, an evolving of your own consciousness and a shift in consciousness for you and a deepening of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I can see that. For example when you when you were talking about the science and learning science and this new story being a whole other world and I was wondering about how that really impacted your understanding of consciousness more than just the science. So can you tell us a bit about how and, and also how that was received by others in your congregation when you came back from Canada and you started to talk about all of this which would have seemed very foreign. Mm-hmm. I think probably the first, um, the first
1: experience that would speak into that would be the apparent clash between the universe story and the Genesis story in the Bible. Uh, people were very... And I myself took me a long time to be able to let go uh, the Genesis story as a literal story of creation. Um, it should have been easier for me because i'd done some biblical studies mm-hmm. and understood um, you know the the impact and the use of myth and mythic language but um, somewhere in the back of my mind i still saw the creation story in genesis as a literal story that that's how god had created the world mm-hmm. so for me um, that was a struggle to begin with and it certainly was a struggle that many, many people who came to hear the story for the first time, that was a struggle they articulated Mm -hmm. too. Um, You know, like I'm a woman of faith, I'm a woman Mm -hmm. of the Catholic tradition Mm -hmm. and so that expression of faith is very deep in me and I don't let go on aspects of that very readily. So um, it took me a while to be able to understand that the biblical story is our faith story And, um, you know, there's a symbolism rather than a literalism Mm -hmm. that we need to um, hear that with, Uh, whereas the science story is um, a story of rational, observable data Mm -hmm. and quite rigorously applied um, data. Mm -hmm. So um, I began to see them as parallel stories, Uh, the faith story bringing meaning for me uh, to, like, in the way I understood... Mm -hmm the um, unfolding universe and evolution of life story. I suppose evolution of life was another stumbling block for me, um, you know, because, again, the Catholic Church's teaching was always very specific that, you know, God's intervention, even when we began to accept evolution as a theory, um, that, that God's intervention of putting a soul in the body somewhere along the line after con- after conception that that was a very dearly held uh, proposition. And to imagine that life could have begun spontaneously in the depths of the sea at some, um, you know, um, volcanic uh, 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 crater, um, that took a long time for me to be able to accept that that could well have been what happened. Mm. So I think for me and for other people, those new scientific facts that were coming to us Um, were a big challenge to our faith. With regard to Rahamim, uh, many of the local parishioners, and some of the sisters too, I think, saw Rahamim as a bit sort of new agey. Mm. They didn't quite understand what was happening here. Uh, They tended to look on from the outside and from a distance and so uh, didn't didn't expose themselves to... um, to actually what was happening, um, made their judgments and drew their conclusions from afar, and often that was was very negative. Mm. And um, if they weren't doing that, they were people who already had done a science degree and they knew it all anyway. (laughs) And somebody who'd done no science at all wasn't going to be teaching them anything about, you know, the unfolding universe and the, um, uh, the evolving planet. They already knew that, so they sort of kept a distance from it. However, the church leaders, although they didn't get involved and uh, in our own congregational authorities, um, they, didn't, they didn't squash it. Mm. They, they gave us uh, enough rope to hang ourselves with <laughs> and um, we, were never, um, we were never asked not to do what we were doing. And I suppose the greatest affirmation for us Came for Rahamim, came with uh, Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, yes. because really mm. Francis could have been a student at Rahamim. <laughs> he, he, he speaks out of the cosmology or the worldview that we've been teaching at Rahamim for over 30 years. Mm. Well, not at Rahamim specifically, but that we teach at Rahamim and that it had its roots, you know, about 30 years ago. ..when I came home from Canada. Mm. So that was a great shot in the arm for us. And almost overnight, um, external attitudes to Rahamim began to change. You know, suddenly we were okay. We were (laughs) not quite mainstream, but we were getting there. And that's the other thing, I suppose. There's so much now that is mainstream science Mm. on on TV programs and available in literature, you know, in articles and books. Um, It's not as new and novel anymore... You know, people may not um, directly focus on it or study it, but it sort of comes in through the pores of your skin once it gets into the media. Mm. And that story's being told over and over and over again in different ways by people like Brian Cox Mm. and um, David Attenborough's series. Um, And kids are learning about it in school. But I think in terms of um, people of faith, they still need a safe place where they can ask their questions and search for their answers because the official teaching of the church, up until the time of Francis anyway, um, was still uh, quite ignoring of the fact that we live in an unfolding universe and on an evolving planet Mm. and that we have a, a moral responsibility to take that on board and live as if we believed that.
0: If that was really taken on in our institutions that are so slow and resistant to change, um, surely it would have to have some sort of impact on how things go. For example, the patriarchal nature Mm -hmm. of how we're Mm -hmm. Mm organised. Perhaps slowly structures like that will start to change, do you think? Well, I'd
1: hope so. I mean, I've seen a lot of... I've seen change in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and sometimes change is... And in my own life it's been like this. Sometimes it's incrementally slow. Mm. You know, I, I I wouldn't be able to point to one particular moment apart from that, you know, original astounding moment when I was exposed to this story for the first time. But any shifts that happened in my consciousness as a result of knowing that I live in an unfolding universe and a, an evolving planet has happened very, very gradually. And, you know, I've worked through mm. my meaning issues very slowly. I couldn't even Mm -hmm. point to a moment when a particular insight or breakthrough happened, but I know I'm different now from Mm -hmm. what I was 30 years ago in terms of how I understand myself Mm -hmm. as part of the human species within the context of um, this new reality. So um, sometimes change is very, very, very slow, but sometimes there's a Mm -hmm. quantum leap. Yeah. And you just, all of a sudden, well, I think my original shift in consciousness, knowing that um, knowing that I was part of this extraordinary story, that was a quantum leap for me. And there's no, you know, that was, there's no going back on that new knowledge. Mm-hmm. I could never, even though I didn't, I, I hadn't lived out the implications of it, I could never un-see the insight that I had, realising that... Um, that this planet was an evolving planet or Mm. that this universe is an unfolding universe and that, you know, I live on the outer edge of the Milky Way galaxy. Mm. I mean, they were quantum leaps, things that I had no idea about before and suddenly I knew, Mm. uh, as I say, the implications mightn't have dawned on me immediately, but certainly I could never unknow those things Mm. and they are bound to have an impact on me.
0: Or a prayer or something that, that you would spend time with each day in order to tune into what's drawing you? Well, I suppose
1: um, part of my religious practice as a Sister of Mercy has been meditation. Mm. And so um, meditation would certainly be, um, you know, one of the like that. I suppose that's a privileged that's a privileged practice um, for religious, but it's not restricted to religious, I know a lot of lay people who also meditate, but in this um, busy world that we live in at the moment, where you know it's very hard to stop and do anything,
2: mm.
1: um, to have that uh, requirement of taking time each day and an extended period of time at least once a year to be still, mm. um, I think that's probably the most significant practice that I engage in that would help me to be in touch with that deeper dimension of myself. I read. um, I'm part of a couple of groups that reflect together. Um, uh, I meditate. I probably meditate in different ways now from what I did earlier. I mean, once upon a time, my meditation would have been exclusively focused on scripture, whereas now um, I still... I still meditate with a focus on scripture, but I also meditate with a focus on the natural world. Mm. And like for some people, they would have always done that, mm. but not for me. Mm. So that's a new thing for me, and it's something that I find very valuable. Mm. Um, I've got two little dogs, and they've taught me a lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Even just reflecting on them and their, their yeah. interaction and their interaction with me
2: mm.
1: has made me much more sensitive to... natural world than I might otherwise have been Mm. because like we tended to live our lives in the old cosmology out of a belief that the rest of the natural world was just sort of a backdrop for our world Mm. we were the important part of the whole creative um, venture Mm. and the rest of the world whether we're talking animals or plants or um, you know mountains or rivers it was just sort of there for us to live our lives. We were the main actors.
2: Mm.
1: But um, as I said before, I don't see that now. I don't. Our specialness doesn't reside in our being um, superior to or dominating of the rest of the natural world. Mm. Um, our specialness probably resides in our having the capacity to know that we're not superior. Mm. We are part of the rest of the natural world. Um, that reflective consciousness, I think, is is a really critical part of what it means to be human. But we've got to take the time to reflect conscious consciousness to grow in us. And um, um, you know, I think, um, I think. Now, who was it, Thomas Berry, or some? I think it was Thomas Berry who said. Um, no, it might have been Gail. I might have been listening to something that Gail said. And she said that we're on the verge of a technozoic or an ecozoic age. And whichever one of those ages we put our weight behind and it becomes dominant, that's going to determine uh, whether we go forward or whether we become extinct. Mm-hmm. And um, they're not exactly her words, but mm. that's my understanding of what you were saying.
0: That's Gail Orsello's yes. recent visit to Australia. That's right, yes, mm. yes. It strikes me that, I mean, you're not just doing this shift of consciousness for yourself. You established a whole ministry around this to convince everyone around you of it. Mm. And I can only imagine there must have been a lot of resistance. I mean, you've, you talked about it being new age for some people and so on, but to actually get it to the point of a ministry and an ecological learning community. And, I mean, you've always been on the new frontier. Even when it was an ecological learning community, you were engaging people like Peter Andrews who were so ahead of their time. So you're always ahead of your time. (laughs) There must have been a lot of times of struggle and opposition to what you were trying to do.
1: Um, I suppose on and off there were. I'd be inclined to say that, there was more um, ignoring of what we were doing (laughs) than actual opposition to what we were doing. Um, I think when people didn't understand, they just simply walked away. Um, And I think because we were so convinced about what we were doing, that kept the momentum going. Um, You know, when the Institute of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea was established back in 2011, um, you know, we we were struggling financially to keep going. That was our big issue. You know, this is not a mainstream ministry that generates its own income. Mm. And there's a bit of a tendency these days. I mean, I I think ministry really struggles these days because of the high level of litigation Mm -hmm. around and the fear of risk. Mm. People are just... uh, People in authority, uh, people in leadership, people in administration are so fearful of the institution that they're responsible for getting into trouble, either financially or legally, that it almost chokes Mm -hmm. any um, fluid ministry, as I would have known it as a younger person. This ministry um, wouldn't have been considered to be a mainstream ministry, Uh, The Sisters of Mercy were founded to work with marginalised people in poverty-stricken Dublin um, around about the time of the Industrial Revolution. Um, So suddenly to come out and say, expand our ministry of mercy beyond human beings to the rest of the natural world, which up until that point was considered to be just a backdrop Mm. to the human Mm activity in the world, um, people certainly didn't comprehend that. Mm. Um, You know, there was really not a lot of value placed on the natural world for its own sake. We had a a utilitarian view of the natural world. So that was one stumbling block. And that would have come both from the sisters and from, um, you know, the wider community as well. Uh, Because it's not a mainstream ministry and because there's been a bit of an emphasis in terms of ministry on ministries, well, you know, in in fact, with the big institutional ministries, they're also businesses at this stage. Mm -hmm. You know, hospitals run themselves in a sense, not run themselves, but I mean, they finance themselves. Mm -hmm. They get plenty of government funding, but, um, you know, schools, uh, they're big businesses now as well as ministry. So when you're starting a new ministry, to put it on the same basis as an institutional ministry that's been running for nearly 100 years, doesn't really give a true picture of what ministry is. Most of those ministries started pretty small and they struggled. So um, Rahamim struggled for finance mm. after we got that significant grant uh, right at the beginning of things. Uh, the property itself that we're on, um, it needs maintenance and maintenance is costly and there's also been a downturn in volunteers. Mm -hmm. So um, finance has always been a really significant issue around this ministry. Uh, However, um, in more recent times, in the last couple of years, um, the ministry has been taken into uh, the Institute of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea as an ongoing ministry. Um, and I don't know what the implications are for the local ministry of that happening. We still have to live into that. But um, but certainly, um, having now that international base, really, and over the years, we've spent uh, quite a lot of energy networking with environmental groups that are both that are local, national and international. Uh, we've got quite a strong network now around the planet of groups that are working for environmental um, education and nurturance. So I'd be hopeful um, as we move forward that that we will have a wider audience through the uh, institutional works of the Sisters of Mercy around uh, Australia and Papua New Guinea and um, that um, there will be some way of retaining the visible witness of having invested in at least one property of the institute uh, that gives value to the environment for its own sake rather than the environment as a piece of real estate mm. but it remains to be seen whether we can we can find a way of um, of simply financing um, property like that, whether Mm. the Institute can actually manage to do that. Mm. I know there's goodwill Mm. around all of that, but there's also the practical realities that have to be faced Mm. about um, with the other um, obligations that the Institute has, whether it can afford to retain a property that, as I say, gives witness to the value for its own sake Mm. of a piece of land. So that's resources. really
0: that's really your battle, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. it, it's a financial battle, but it's actually one of convincing others mm-hmm. that this is worthwhile and 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 bringing people along with you in your journey mm-hmm. of an expanding consciousness that includes mercy for more than the human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, I wouldn't.
1: That wouldn't be a unique consciousness for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it might be. Um, it might be. restricted consciousness in the world that I, my immediate world that I live in, you know, people are still moving towards an understanding Mm. that reflects something of that. But of course there are other people around the planet who are far ahead of me Mm. in, Mm. um, you know, in understanding, um, you know, our place in the natural world. And, uh, you know, my my mentor Thomas Berry and uh, my mentors, Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, speak very eloquently about this. Mm.
2: Um,
1: once when we asked Thomas, you know, what 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 to do, he said, well the first thing that the first thing to do is for human beings to pull back a bit mm. and allow other species a habitat yeah. to live in. If if they're allowed their habitat, they'll, you know, we don't have to we don't have to enable them to survive. They'll survive. But they've got to have a habitat to survive in. Mm. But at the moment, the human species is colonise the whole planet Mm. so that every other creature whether it's plant or animal is living in the human habitat Mm. and gets you know only gets what human beings don't want Mm. for themselves and that's a pretty greedy way to to live in the family tree.
2: Mm.
1: Adopting sustainable practices is very very important but you can adopt sustainable practices out of the cosmology that the majority of us are living out of at the moment. Mm. And that's where I'd like to push the boundaries and say that you know if you take on the new cosmology, then the sustainable practices that you adopt will be much more relevant for future than just simply taking like taking on or um, adopting um, sustainable practices um, without that sort of spiritual grounding and rootedness mm. that you find once you've embraced the story, mm. the new story.
0: Well it, it strikes me that you seem to be one who's um, who's really drawn forward and is constantly moving forward and you said before that you're a reader mm-hmm. and I would love it if you would share with us some of your pieces that have inspired you over the years.
1: The first thing I'd like to share would be a passage out of um, Thomas Berry's *The Great Work*, um, and it explains this passage explains in itself uh, what Thomas understands our great work to be. So this is the this is the first thing I'd like to share with you. The great work before us, the task of moving modern industrial civilization from its present devastating influence on the earth to a more benign mode of presence is not a role that we have chosen. It is a role given to us beyond any consultation with ourselves. We did not choose. We were chosen by some power beyond ourselves for this historical task. We do not choose the moment of our birth, who our parents will be, our particular culture, or the historical moment when we will be born. We do not choose the status of spiritual insight or political or economic conditions that will be the context of our lives. We are, as it were, thrown into existence with a challenge and a role that is beyond any personal choice. The nobility of our lives, however, depends upon the manner in which we come to understand and fulfil our assigned role. Yet we must believe that those powers that assign our role must in that same act bestow upon us the ability to fulfil this role. We must believe that we are cared for and guided by these same powers that bring us into being.
0: Can you... Tell us a little bit about why you chose that passage, Patricia.
1: I find it very encouraging myself. Mm. and I mean, particularly coming out of the piece of conversation that we've just had about, mm. you know, how does one sustain oneself, uh, particularly in times of trial and opposition?
2: Mm.
1: And... Um, and I suppose I believe what Thomas is saying. Again, I believe it, coming out of my faith tradition. Mm-hmm. Even though Thomas doesn't mention God in that, um, the power that um, is our origin and the power that draws us forward, in my belief system, that's God,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that um, that speaks directly. Although it's it, although it's um, although it's taking it to a new level. It does speak directly to, um, you know, the faith um, system that I believe in and operate out of. Mm. So I just, I just find that a very. Inco- I read that passage frequently, mm. especially the last paragraph. We must believe that those powers that assign our role must, in that same act, bestow upon us the ability to fulfil it. Mm. That gives me a sense of power. <laughs>
0: That explains a lot. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: What else have we got it. there?
1: <laughs> um, one of the other things, this takes us back earlier again, uh, is from Drew Dillinger, mm. a poet. And um, his sentiments are my sentiments. Even though I don't have grandchildren, I have um, grandnieces and nephews. Mm. And, you know, I know lots of people who've got grandchildren, and I'm quite sure that that they would resonate with this as well. Hieroglyphic Stairway. It's 3.23 in the morning, and I'm awake because my great-great-grandchildren won't let me sleep. My great-great-grandchildren ask me in dreams, what did you do while the planet was plundered? What did you do when the earth was unravelling? Surely you did something when the seasons started failing, as the mammals, reptiles, birds were all dying. Did you fill the streets with protest when democracy was stolen? What did you do once you knew? And I think that's very relevant, um, in terms of our response to climate change. Mm. I mean, we still have climate change deniers. Um, We still have people who, while they acknowledge climate change, um, are at odds with the human contribution to it. But, um, you know, when we experience the weather patterns that we're experiencing at the moment across the planet, um, we would have to ask ourselves, we don't have to wait till our great-great-great-grandchildren ask us, why aren't we doing something mm. to respond to this? Mm. Why are we saying it's just the pattern that's always been?
0: Well, certainly so that, that line that, you know, where were you when the seasons started failing? What did you do? I mean, the seasons are failing now. That's right, that's mm. right.
1: And one of the things I think that's, um, you know, most distressing to me is the change in the New South Wales land clearing laws that have happened Mm. just in the last 12 months Mm. where um, areas as large as 14 football fields are being cleared in a day. Mm. Now, this is out in country that's experiencing drought. Um, It's often in relation to the growing of cotton. Uh, Cotton takes a lot of water to grow and um, in order for clouds to... Uh, release rain, there's a very significant relationship between trees and clouds. Mm. Uh, you know, the terpenes, terpenes in trees help to enable the rain to fall. Mm. Now, why we aren't planting trees out in that area, why we're cutting trees down, mm. um, even primary school children would mm. understand the connections, and yet people in our leadership roles don't seem to get it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and mm. thank you for 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 bringing into our hearts the the future ones as well, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to imagine that you know the generations ahead. Mm.
1: Yes, I mean I'm I'm a person of hope and optimism. I'm still hoping mm. that we may yet um, come to our senses and do something to mitigate, um, you know, an unthinkable future.
0: Yeah, well, thank you, f- <laughs> thank you so much for. All that you've done, I mean, and now as we speak, we're about to, uh, people are arriving and we're about to celebrate your Order of Australia medal, so congratulations for all you've achieved.
1: Thank you, Sally. The
0: driving spirit.
1: I feel very humbled by that because all of these people that are gathering, um, I would not have achieved anything that I've achieved. Um, without the collaboration and the support of these people. Mm. So I feel really that this award belongs to all of us. Mm. And um, in that sense, I'm humbled to accept it on behalf of all of us. But I know I've done nothing on my own. (laughs) Thank you, Patricia. Do you need
2: to cater for an event, but despair at the amount of plastic and packaging that is used each time you do? Rahamim produces ethical and plastic-free catering for all kinds of events. Hi, I'm Alicia, and I'm the hospitality coordinator at Rahamim. We provide seasonal, organic, local, ethical meals that are both delicious and healthy. Our catering services are available locally in Bathurst, and we deliver. So if you want catering that is super fresh, imaginative, and inexpensive, call us on 63 329 950, or visit our website, www.rahamim.org.au.
0: Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Institute of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea, facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit That's www.rahamem.org.au. This podcast was produced by Anastasia Freeman.